Chapter 7 Mukawama wa Intikam Resistance and Reprisals May to August 2003 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 7 Mukawama wa Intikam Resistance and Reprisals May to August 2003 Chapter 7 Mukawama wa Intikam, or Resistance and Reprisals May to August 2003 Page 169 As anti-coalition violence mounted in the summer of 2003, the leadership at U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, believed the enemy they faced was rooted in a former Ba'athist Sunni resistance movement with some involvement from foreign terrorist organizations and the resurgence of Ansar al-Islam. However, this description far oversimplified the nascent resistance organizations and militias building footholds in the vast swaths of Iraq's uncontrolled territory. The sources of Iraq's instability in the summer of 2003 were far more complex than the Ba'athist holdovers and foreign terrorist organizations to which CENTCOM and CJTF-7 attributed the violence. All three of Iraq's primary ethno-religious groups, the Sunni Arabs, the Shia Arabs, and the Kurds, had pre-existing armed militias or militant groups at their disposal with which to pursue their separate ambitions. After the regime fell, former Ba'athist leaders, the Badr Corps, the Kurds, Islamist terror groups, and some of Iraq's neighbors entered the power vacuum to advance their own separate interests, many of which ran counter to the coalition's objectives for Iraq, and also gave rise to a bloody struggle for supremacy in post-Saddam Iraq. The Sunnis, Disenfranchised and Extreme Page 169 Although it was true that many Iraqi Sunnis resented the regime's removal from power, some Sunnis had hoped the coalition would eventually come to recognize the value of maintaining Sunni prominence in the Iraqi government. Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, Orders 1 and 2 obliterated that optimism and turned most Sunnis against the occupation force, lending popular support to the disenfranchised former Iraqi soldiers, Ba'ath Party officials, and Sunni tribes who were eager to expel the coalition presence. Throughout the summer of 2003, former Ba'athist resistance groups, led by Izat Ibrahim al-Duri and a senior Ba'athist leader named Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad, organized attacks against coalition targets in northern and western Iraq. At the same time, terrorist organizations such as Ansar al-Sunnah and the Jordanian Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's Tawhid wal-Jihad, or Monotheism and Holy War, focused on breaking up international support for the coalition by conducting attacks against coalition partners and the United Nations, or UN. Sunni insurgents also began intimidating and assassinating officials of the Iraqi interim government. Disenfranchising the Sunni Tribes in addition to empowering Sunni Ba'athist loyalists, Saddam had also cultivated supportive Sunni Arab tribes and used them to shore up state institutions and consolidate power within the Ba'ath party. He had doled out important government security posts, including the Minister of Defense, the Military Bureau, and the National Security Bureau to members of his own tribe, and he recruited members of the tribes he favored in Anbar, Ninawa, and Salahuddin for service in the Iraqi armed forces, thereby linking his regime's defense interests with a vast tribal network. 
He had also allowed favored tribes to profit from illegal enterprises in their traditional tribal areas, many of which involved smuggling and black market activities, during the period of sanctions from 1991 to 2003. Saddam frequently allowed his preferred tribal leaders to administer justice and punishment to their tribesmen, and he doled out goods, services, and resources to tribes and tribal sheikhs in his favor. Not all of Iraq's major tribes had prospered under Saddam's patronage, however. In 1995, Saddam executed an influential member of the Al-Bu-Nimr tribe of Ramadi, after which the tribe revolted against the regime and attacked government outposts in Anbar. The Al-Bu-Nimr were joined in their resistance by the Al-Bu-Fahad and the Al-Bu-Alwan tribes, whose members attempted to assassinate Uday Hussein in 1996. Saddam used his military forces and more loyal Anbari tribes to crush these revolts, but resentment of Saddam and the regime simmered. Therefore, some Anbari tribes were primed to view regime change favorably. At the time Saddam and the Ba'ath Party were removed from power, much of the Sunni areas of Iraq, Anbar, Salahuddin, Nineveh, and parts of Tamim, were still untouched by the coalition presence. Having never encountered or fought directly with the coalition, many Sunni tribal leaders believed they and their tribes had not lost the war, or they attributed the loss to Saddam's foolishness. As the coalition gradually injected more forces into the areas and accepted the surrender of the remaining Iraqi army units in Anbar, many tribal leaders in Anbar waited for the coalition to approach them. Speaking with Sunni tribal and religious leaders in summer 2003, CJTF-7 officers dispatched by Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez were surprised by what they learned about Sunni tribal expectations. The general and inaccurate perception among Sunni tribal sheikhs, they observed, was that the Sunnis held a numerical majority in the country and were the most appropriate choice to run Iraq. The Shia, Sunnis believed, were not naturally capable of doing so. Sunni leaders viewed themselves as the natural allies of the coalition, as they shared a common enemy, Iran, and expected that the United States would enact a patronage system similar to the one they had enjoyed under Saddam. In exchange for a coalition decision to put the Iraqi government in Sunni hands, these tribes intended to keep the Shia Iranians out of Iraq and split oil revenues with the United States and its coalition partners. Many Sunni leaders who had chosen not to fight against the invading coalition troops had assumed they would be rewarded with key positions in the new U.S.-backed interim government. They had not been regime insiders, many Sunnis reasoned, and thus expected to be included and even privileged in the post-Saddam order. As one prominent Sunni cleric, Ahmed Kubesi, put it, Iraqi Sunnis have been caught between Saddam and the coalition. Quote, they were between two fires, end quote, Kubesi told Al-Arabiya TV in 2004. Quote, I used to refer to Iraq at that time as the land of two fires, rather than the land of two rivers. They were between the fire of the occupation and the fire of Saddam. That's why people hoped the best about the occupation, especially us Iraqis. Our view of America was that it was a country of freedoms, democracy, and human rights. So people believed Iraq would be put on a new path and remain a state cleansed of the elements needed to be cleaned out. That's why the Iraqi army did not fight in Baghdad. End quote. The coalition's failure to work with the Sunni tribes, combined with CPA's outreach to Shia leaders, quickly disabused the Sunni sheikhs of Anbar of the notion that the United States had any intention of re-establishing their patronage. When Sunni tribal leaders realized that the United States intended to allow the Shia the majority share of Iraqi interim government and, in so doing, reduce the amount of Sunni political control and access to state resources, they quickly turned against the coalition. 
Even before the CPA's actions, though, Anbari leaders, in particular, had already accumulated perceived grievances against the coalition. Some Anbari leaders later claimed to have agreed to a truce with U.S. troops in the early days of the invasion and that the entry of U.S. forces into Anbari cities after the fall of Baghdad was, in effect, an American violation of the truce. The April 28th riot in Fallujah that ended with U.S. soldiers exchanging gunfire with militants, Iraqi sources claimed 17 locals were killed, had ostensibly begun as a protest against this perceived violation, although in hindsight it is clear that the troops of the 82nd Airborne Division in Fallujah had no awareness of any supposed truce. Sunnis were also overconfident in their ability to defeat the Shia factions and the Kurds in battle, after which they expected that the United States would be forced to realize that it must work with them rather than the Shia to control Iraq. Sunni sheikhs were certain that their layered network of tribal ties, kinship, and proven ability in battle would eventually restore them to power. In the meantime, many began to join forces with other Sunni resistance and terrorist organizations to expel the coalition violently from the Sunni areas of Iraq. The Ba'ath in Exile As General John P. Abizaid and later CJTF-7 Intelligence Red Cell observed, a significant portion of the resistance against the coalition in the summer of 2003 stemmed directly from the organized remnants of Saddam's regime. After the regime fell, Saddam's deputy, Izat Ibrahim al-Duri, escaped to Syria with a large amount of the Iraqi regime's money and extensive contacts among former Ba'ath Party leaders, members of the Iraqi intelligence service, and Sunni and Sufi tribal and religious leaders with whom he had cultivated relationships during Saddam's faith campaign of the 1990s. Duri's influence under Saddam extended far beyond his official duties as the commander of Iraq's northern military region. Like Saddam, Duri came from impoverished circumstances in the Tikrit region. In 1968, he and Saddam participated in the July 17th Revolution, and the two served together in the early intelligence component of the Ba'ath Party. As one of the most trusted members of Saddam's inner circle after Saddam took the reins of power in 1979, Duri became the vice chairman of the Iraqi Revolutionary Command Council. During the 1990s, Duri operated a network that smuggled European luxury cars to Iraq through the Jordanian port of Aqaba, putting him in contact with mechanics, smugglers familiar with the cross-border region, and clandestine auto body shops, the kind of infrastructure that later was useful in deploying car bombs. Later, as commander of Iraq's northern military zone, Duri controlled the territory that most of his loyalists regarded as home, including command of all the Republican Guard units stationed there. Duri would later use the money and connections from these networks to become one of the chief Iraqi resistance leaders in exile. Because Coalition Forces Land Component Commands, or CFLCC's, northern offensive had consisted of only a relatively small U.S. special operations force accompanying the Kurdish Peshmerga, Duri was able to weather most of the invasion with his core supporters more or less intact. His power base only crumbled when Baghdad fell. The inability of the coalition's light northern footprint to prevent the retreat of Republican Guard and Iraqi army personnel south from the Green Line left many of these military unit headquarters basically intact in terms of the personnel who staffed them, many of whom remained loyal to Duri. As coalition forces were largely unaware of Duri's personal connections, they made little effort to identify or dismantle his networks, which then went underground and awaited his orders. Once safely in Syria, Duri attempted to establish a quasi-legitimate government in exile. 
According to one former Syrian official, Douri proposed to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in 2003 that the two rival Ba'athist groups merge their parties into a single organization that would wage a war of liberation against coalition forces in Iraq. Assad responded by moving instead to subordinate the deposed Iraqi Ba'athists to a previously obscure Iraqi branch of his own Syrian Ba'ath party. Only the substantial funds that Dury had taken from Iraq's coffers allowed him to operate with a measure of independence thereafter. The Ba'athist Islamists Jaish Muhammad, Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad, and Jaish al-Islami the earliest organized Ba'athist resistance to the coalition occupation emerged in the form of an organization called Jaish Muhammad, or Army of Muhammad. Saddam directed the founding and initial growth of the organization from his hiding spot in Ad-Dawr in Salahuddin, and the effort was organized in Anbar shortly thereafter as well. In its early days, Jaish Muhammad may have benefited from a large amount of foreign currency reportedly taken from Iraq's central bank in April 2003 by Uday Hussein for financing armed resistance against the coalition. The group planned to wage a guerrilla warfare campaign against the coalition to restore the Iraqi Ba'ath to power. Jaish Muhammad initially consisted of a small cadre of low- and mid-level Ba'athist military personnel as well as tribesmen drawn from the regime's core support base. Meetings in Ramadi in the spring and summer of 2003 resulted in a decision to divide the group into four major contingents or battalions. The Auda, or Return Battalion, was comprised of Ba'ath Party civilian cadres from the Hizab al-Auda, or Party of the Return, while the Fedayeen Battalion was drawn from the Fedayeen Saddam, the Army Forces General Command Battalion from remnants of the Iraqi military, and the Mujahideen Battalion from foreign fighters who remained loyal to the Iraqi Ba'ath after the fall of the regime. The group's access to existing Ba'ath Party networks, political leadership, and militias enabled it to grow rapidly and support thousands of former regime loyalists in Iraq and Syria. As Jaish Muhammad grew, it maintained a disciplined cell structure and strict hierarchy modeled on the pre-war Ba'ath Party. Like Izat Ibrahim al-Duri, the organization's leadership brokered deals with the Syrian regime that allowed its members to purchase supplies in Syria and infiltrate fighters back and forth across the border with Iraq. Jaish Muhammad simultaneously created a sophisticated propaganda machine. Through its connections to the Al-Barak media establishment, Al-Fursan magazine, and the Al-Zawra satellite channel run by the would-be mayor of Mosul, Mishan al-Jaburi, and other Iraqi and Arab media, Jaish Muhammad enjoyed the most broad-based propaganda efforts of any Sunni insurgent organization in Iraq. With plentiful resources at its disposal, Jaish Muhammad eventually expanded its anti-coalition activities from Anbar to Nineveh, Salahuddin, Tamim, Diyala, and Baghdad. One of Jaish Muhammad's top leaders was Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad, a Moslawi who was almost unknown to the coalition but prominent in the Ba'ath Party. He had been head of the political guidance directorate of the Ba'ath Party under Saddam and, as of March 2000, reportedly served as Ba'ath Party leader in Salahuddin, Tamim, and Suleimania. After the invasion, Ahmad used his connections and supporters in the northern provinces to expand his organization beyond Anbar, eventually organizing attacks against the coalition in Anbar and northern Iraq. From an early stage after Saddam's fall, Ahmad became a rival of Duri for the succession to Saddam, and the competition became the source of future schisms within the former regime component of the Iraqi Sunni resistance movement. The relationship between the Ba'ath Party apparatus and Iraq's tribal elites under Saddam led to the formation of yet another Sunni resistance organization called Jaish al-Islami, or the Islamic Army of Iraq. 
After the regime collapsed, a former Iraqi military intelligence colonel named Mohammad Qasim al-Janabi founded the organization in an effort to carry out the Iraqi intelligence service's final orders to continue fighting in the event coalition forces prevailed. The organization's principal aim was to force the coalition to depart and to establish a Sunni-ruled government in Iraq guided by Sharia law. To that end, Jaish al-Islami prosecuted a traditional guerrilla war first against the coalition military and later the new Iraqi army, the Iraqi police, and the Iraqi government. Although Jaish al-Islami accepted support from Duri's budding resistance group, it had little interest in restoring the former regime outright. Its members were drawn primarily from the Janabi, Ubaidi, and Zobay tribes and saw themselves as the institutional continuation of the Iraqi military that was defeated in April 2003. Like Jaish Muhammad, the Jaish al-Islami leadership maintained a strict military-style hierarchy and chain of command among its fighting groups. Jaish al-Islami also developed a close relationship with the Fallujah-based Mujahideen Shura, or Council, led by the Sufi Sheikh Abdullah Janabi. Through Janabi's shura, Jaish al-Islami eventually tapped into a network of extremist clergy and sympathetic donors in the Gulf, culminating in established contacts that included Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Jaish al-Islami also seems to have been bolstered by an influx of Islamist fighters who had been organized by the Ba'athist regime before the fall of Baghdad. One senior Islamist militant who had been among the, quote, Iraqi Afghans, end quote, Islamist fighters who had traveled to Afghanistan to fight in the anti-Soviet jihad of the 1980s, said that he and other militants in the Ba'athist-sponsored Iraqi Quds Army continued an irregular resistance against U.S. troops after the fall of the regime and had eventually joined their fellow Islamist insurgents in Jaish al-Islami. Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad's Jaish Muhammad and Abdullah al-Janabi's Jaish al-Islami operated separately from one another, but they shared a common approach that would eventually permeate other, similar organizations in Iraq, the use of Islamic imagery and themes in describing their resistance movements. Islamist rhetoric would grow with time into a major component of these groups' recruiting efforts, propaganda, and competition for resources as the conflict in Iraq's Sunni heartlands escalated. The Salafi Resistance The rise in Salafi influence sparked by Saddam's faith campaign in the 1990s continued as coalition forces prepared to invade Iraq in early 2003. Resistance to the invasion based on Islamic rather than nationalist principles became paramount in some sectors of society after the Islamic Research Center of Al-Azhar University in Egypt issued a declaration legitimizing violent attacks against the coalition forces as jihad, or holy war, in March. This development assisted Salafi militant group Ansar al-Islam as it worked to recover from the tactical defeat it suffered at the coalition's hands in March and April. The group had lost its enclave in northern Iraq, its training camps, and many of its veteran fighters, but the coalition's inability to close off escape routes from Kirkuk and Suleimania into Sulahaddin and Diyala allowed surviving members of the organization to reach the Sunni Triangle and Iran, where they joined forces with al-Qaeda and other Islamist resistance groups. In short order, Ansar al-Islam established a network of safe houses and other logistics operations for foreign fighters inside Iraq. Ansar al-Islam members who escaped the coalition bombings in March and April were able to use that network to regroup and broaden their appeal to Iraqis beyond Kurdistan, with assistance from Duri's organization and from Zarqawi. 
Signs soon emerged that Ansar al-Islam had relationships with surviving pre-invasion Islamist foreign fighters numbering in the hundreds in Fallujah, Tikrit, Beji, and Baghdad. In June 2003, members of Ansar al-Islam working for the organization's military chief, Abu Abdullah al-Shafi, broke with group founder Mullah Krekar and initiated a strategy to expand Ansar al-Islam beyond its Kurdish roots into an umbrella organization that could unite Iraq's Sunni Islamist groups. In Anbar province, this new branch of Ansar al-Islam established ties to al-Qaeda, which influenced Ansar al-Islam to develop a cell-based structure similar to al-Qaeda's, each of which was organized into small units of 10 to 15 members, led by an emir, or commander. As in al-Qaeda, only a small handful of people in the entire organization were aware of or connected to multiple cells, making the organization more difficult to destroy. As the group's membership grew, it reorganized some of its members and cells into battalions consisting of both Iraqi nationals and foreign fighters from al-Qaeda seeking to battle the coalition presence inside Iraq. The preferred method of attack for the re-energized Ansar al-Islam was suicide bombings. Shortly after the fall of the regime, Shafi issued a statement on the group's website informing the world that, quote, 300 jihad martyrs had renewed their pledge to Allah in order to be suicide bombers in the victory of Allah's religion, end quote, indicating that plans for suicide attacks were underway. Use of this particular technique marked a dramatic shift in Ansar al-Islam's operations, as it had not previously used suicide bombings during its time in Iraqi Kurdistan. Ansar al-Islam's new relationship and ideological affinity with al-Qaeda meant that its core ideology now accepted participants in suicide bombings as shahids, or martyrs, in a military campaign against the enemies of God. Unlike al-Qaeda, however, Ansar al-Islam did not immediately claim credit for the suicide attacks it perpetrated, making it more difficult for the coalition to link attacks directly to the group. Not all Iraqi Salafis supported armed resistance groups like Ansar al-Islam, however. Mullah Nadim Jabouri, a senior Iraqi Salafi from Deluya who later became a leader of the Islamic State of Iraq before joining the Awakening against his former fellow insurgents, later recounted that at the time of the 2003 invasion, Iraq's Salafi community was divided evenly into two camps. One camp believed that fighting the United States was futile, and another camp, led by Iraqi veterans of the Afghan and Chechen wars, wanted to create a resistance movement modeled on the anti-Soviet jihad. Among those who counseled against resistance, senior clerics advised Salafis to wait and observe the coalition's actions for six months before resisting, in hopes that the U.S.-sponsored post-Saddam order would offer a greater role for Sunni clerics like themselves. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, Tawhid wal-Jihad, and Al-Qaeda prepare to fight in Iraq. Before becoming a militant icon, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had been a street thug residing in Zarqa, Jordan, frequently in and out of prison for a variety of offenses. During one of his internments, he encountered a charismatic cleric named Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, with whom he founded the Sunni extremist network Tawhid wal-Jihad, or Monotheism and Holy War. Makdisi convinced Zarqawi to dedicate his life to jihad, and Zarqawi subsequently went to Afghanistan to join the Mujahideen fighting there. In addition to working with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, Zarqawi developed a separate network of militant Islamists across Syria, Jordan, and northern Iraq. Having established himself in Ansar al-Islam's territory after the United States toppled the Taliban in Afghanistan, 
Zarqawi remained affiliated with the Ansar al-Islam organization during and after the coalition invasion of Iraq. In addition to hating the Jordanian government, Zarqawi was angry with the UN over its recognition of Israel, and was especially angry that Jordan and the UN had supported the US intervention in Iraq. He was also virulently anti-Shia, and like some of the Sunni tribes, viewed Iraq's Shia as the chief threat to Sunni power in Iraq and the wider region. In March 2003, Zarqawi and other members of Tawhid wal-Jihad began formulating a strategy to isolate and undermine the coalition occupation force and prevent Iraq's Shia from governing the country. To that end, he prepared his organization to initiate mass casualty attacks against the coalition and the new Iraqi Shia establishment, aiming to ignite a civil war along sectarian lines. With assistance from two lieutenants, Abu Muhammad al-Lubnani and Abu Anas al-Shami, he established a training camp in spring 2003 for foreign fighters in Rawa in Anbar that was later destroyed by coalition troops during Operation Desert Scorpion. After the training camp's destruction, these three worked to expand Tawhid wal-Jihad's support network across the Middle East and Europe. Zarqawi's organization was also bolstered by absorbing many of the foreign fighters whom Saddam and his regime had invited into Iraq to join the resistance against the coalition in the weeks preceding the invasion. Some of these foreign fighters had been among the Fedayeen Saddam who defended the Baghdad airport against the 3rd Infantry Division. Still, others were Syrians or Saudis who had been sheltered even before the invasion by tribal relatives in western and northern Iraq. Many had simply stayed in place around Baghdad after the regime's fall and had gradually migrated into Zarqawi's Tawhid wal-Jihad rather than return to their home countries. Meanwhile, al-Qaeda responded to the coalition invasion of Iraq by circulating propaganda videos and preparing for militant resistance against the coalition. Iraqi sympathizers in Fallujah allowed al-Qaeda to use the city as its base of operations for an anti-coalition insurgency campaign. Al-Qaeda reached out to Islamic non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, for funding and invited Arab members of Ansar al-Islam and Sunni fighters from Baghdad to join its ranks as the coalition moved into Baghdad and northern Iraq. On April 25, 2003, Al-Qaeda declared jihad in Iraq and in July established the armed group of Al-Qaeda in Fallujah under a commander known as Abu Iyad. For most of 2003, al-Qaeda maintained only a small presence in Iraq focused mainly on indoctrination, propaganda, and recruiting, as well as the development of smuggling networks to bring more foreign fighters into Iraq to wage war on the coalition. Even with a small footprint, however, al-Qaeda was capable of organizing and conducting effective attacks on the coalition and its partners. Although improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, were frustrating the coalition's operations in the summer of 2003, the more problematic attacks were mass casualty suicide bombings. Foreign terrorists, led by Zarqawi, initiated a series of spectacular attacks against coalition and Shia targets beginning in August 2003, with the intent of undermining international support for the coalition, while intimidating and fracturing the Iraqi Shia religious leadership. The first attack occurred on August 7, 2003, when a car bomb exploded outside the Jordanian embassy in Baghdad, killing 17 and wounding 40. On August 19, a massive truck bomb struck the newly established UN headquarters in Baghdad, killing 22 people, including Sergio Vieira de Mayo, the UN special representative in Iraq. Nine days after killing the UN's leader in Iraq, Zarqawi managed to kill the most prominent Iraqi Shia politician. On August 28th, 
A suicide car bomb driven by Zarqawi's Jordanian father-in-law, Yasin al-Jarad, detonated outside of the Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf, killing SCIRI leader Mohammed Bakr al-Hakim and nearly 100 others. These attacks heralded a grim pattern that Zarqawi would follow for nearly three years, during which time he would cause the coalition to fray and push Iraqis towards civil war. The Coalition Perspective Guerrilla Warfare and Insurgency Page 177 the increase in the number of attacks, as well as changing tactics against U.S. and coalition military targets in Iraq over the summer of 2003, was an enormous concern for CJTF-7 and CENTCOM and drew the attention of Washington as well. Attack numbers of 160 recorded incidents against coalition units in May increased to 300 in June, spiraling toward 500 in July. The number of attacks gradually increased to over 600 per month through August 2004. More than 90% of these attacks occurred in Baghdad, Salahuddin, Anbar, Diyala, Ninawa, and Babil, areas with either Sunni majorities or a large Sunni minority. CJTF-7 determined after Operation Desert Scorpion that the location of the Iraqi-initiated attacks, quote, shifted from the western Fallujah al-Qaim corridor to the Balad-Tikrit-Mosul axis, where the perpetrators may have concluded they could find residual Ba'athist elements, more receptive locals, and more vulnerable targets. End quote. The attackers in these areas used mostly guerrilla-type hit-and-run tactics such as opportunistic firefights, drive-by shootings, ambushes, rocket-propelled grenades, and sniper attacks against coalition military targets. Beginning in July, CJTF-7 also observed increasing numbers of mortar attacks against military compounds, particularly those in Baghdad, Tikrit, and Bakaba. The attacks had shifted from random targets to planned attacks against supply convoys, checkpoints, forward operating bases, and NGOs. In August, CJTF-7 became aware that some groups, it was unknown whether they were criminals, terrorists, or insurgents, were using organized kidnappings for ransom to finance their operations. Iraqis saw this last activity as a consequence of the coalition's failure to fill the security vacuum left after removing the regime from power. Insurgents also began perfecting their use of roadside bombs, a weapon that proved increasingly effective against coalition convoys and softer targets. Due to the easy access of explosives, mines, mortars, tank rounds, and artillery shells in Iraq, as well as the low level of expertise required to construct these devices, IEDs rapidly became the insurgents' preferred mode of attack against the coalition. IED attacks began sporadically in late April and increased steadily for the rest of the year, eventually averaging up to 20 per day from August to December 2003. The casualty rate from these attacks was significant. As of early 2004, IED attacks caused approximately 54% of coalition casualties. As insurgent attacks mounted in the summer of 2003, political considerations inhibited CENTCOM's and CJTF-7's ability for several months to characterize appropriately the enemy the coalition was facing in Iraq. On July 16th, Abizaid publicly stated that U.S. forces in Iraq were facing a, quote, classical guerrilla-type campaign, end quote. Abizaid's statement earned him the ire of Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, Donald H. Rumsfeld, who had essentially fired Lieutenant General William Wallace for a similarly candid statement about the unexpected nature of the enemy during the invasion. 
Realizing that the naming of the enemy had become a politically charged topic in Washington, Abizaid attempted to remove some of the constraints on the verbiage used to describe sources of violence and instability in Iraq. He followed up his public comments with two memoranda to Rumsfeld on July 25th. In the first memorandum, Abizaid clarified the term guerrilla campaign and argued that the composition, activities, and goals of the emerging armed groups in Iraq met the definition of an insurgency, quote, because portions of the enemy constituted an organized movement aimed at the overthrow of a constituted government, i.e. CPA slash IGC, through the use of subversion and armed conflict, end quote. He noted that the Iraq insurgency was not yet at the level of intensity that the U.S. military had encountered in Vietnam, but he advised Rumsfeld, quote, we should not deny ourselves the ability to use the term insurgency in the future, end quote. In the meantime, he recommended that the U.S. military conceive of the enemy in Iraq as employing a, quote, terrorist strategy, end quote, and using, quote, terrorist attacks and guerrilla warfare tactics, end quote. Abizaid added that coalition operations against these actors should be considered counter-terrorist and counter-guerrilla activities. Abizaid's second memorandum to Rumsfeld contained his estimate of the enemy in Iraq. Reviewing the results of recent offensive CJTF-7 operations in the Sunni Triangle, Abizaid judged the, quote, continuation of our offensive campaign against the Baathists and other adversaries, end quote, as the most urgent priority for the Iraq theater. The two primary sources of enemy activity, Abizaid noted, were loyalists of the former regime and radicalized Islamists who had found fertile recruiting grounds among a large pool of unemployed and angry youth, especially in the Sunni heartland. These adaptable fighters and organizations, however, lacked regional or national command and control and were therefore limited to using guerrilla tactics and terrorism to build more popular support. Abizaid also noted that the resistance had a political component, evidenced by names of insurgent elements like the Party of the Return, or Hizb al-Auda, and he argued that the greater problem facing the coalition was the lack of economic opportunity and legitimate governance in Iraq. Quote, The potential recruits are disaffected mainly because they perceive a lack of progress in economic development and political reform. They are facing loss of livelihood are frustrated by a lack of security and basic services, have the perception that they are losers due to the termination of Saddam-era patronage and debothification, have strong nationalist feelings, feel humiliated by the rapid coalition military victory over Iraqi armed forces, and are suspicious of coalition motivations for liberating Iraq, as well as coalition designs for the future. End quote. To combat these sources of instability and violence, Abizaid proposed a reorganization of CPA which would extend its presence beyond Baghdad, a comprehensive strategic communications campaign, programs for economic development, the strengthening of political and judicial systems, and a campaign to gain international support for the reconstruction effort. Abizaid believed the enemy in Iraq, as in Vietnam, was best described as a popular resistance organization attempting to overthrow what it considered an illegitimate regime. Thus, without using the politically inflammatory word insurgency, Abizaid had essentially outlined the roots of an Iraqi insurgency and a coalition counterinsurgency campaign. Although Abizaid's picture of the enemy was accurate in many respects for many areas of Iraq, it was missing a few key dimensions. First, Abizaid, and to an extent CJTF-7, believed that the resistance he was facing was an organized movement that Saddam's security forces had planned in the event of regime collapse. In actuality, the former Baathist resistance was organized loosely at first, in spite of the emergency directive Saddam had issued shortly before the invasion. 
Second, CENTCOM and CJTF-7 assessments did not place the Sunni-based resistance in the context of Iraq's tribal system and culture or within the rise of Iraq's conservative religious movements that had begun during Saddam's faith campaign. Finally, the Abizaid Memoranda did not mention the emergence of Shia militias and the extent to which Sunni resistance groups were organizing to fight against a potential Shia ascendancy and Iranian influence. Despite its concurrence on general themes and trends, CJTF-7's ability to conceptualize the enemy forces lagged far behind CENTCOMs. Many of the same analysts and operations staff members whose Cold War-era training and simulations prevented them from recognizing the role of the Fedayeen and other irregular forces during the invasion were also slow to recognize the activities of an insurgent force when Fifth Corps found itself transformed into a theater headquarters overnight. Thus, they continued to try to explain the enemy in terms of large land forces and other paradigms that were poor fits for the intricate, interwoven networks of political militias, former military organizations, and tribal and religious affiliates that overlaid all of the hostile activity in Iraq. Quote, One thing that always frustrated me was the idea that, unless you could lay out a military-style hierarchy of command and control, a bad organization didn't exist. End quote recalled Colonel Derek Harvey, an intelligence officer whom CENTCOM sent to assist CJTF-7 in the summer of 2003 and who ended up leading the command's intelligence red cell. U.S. units were also accustomed to detecting enemy activities and intentions by monitoring large camps and military equipment or tracking al-Qaeda-type communications used by comparatively few foreign fighters in Iraq. They were not used to gathering information on the tribal and other informal networks that were emerging in the aftermath of regime collapse. At the tactical level, the human intelligence teams that were capable of collecting information on those networks tended to lack the experience, analytical skills, and interpreters necessary for the task. It would take months of on-the-job training and the introduction of additional personnel and systems focused on human intelligence, network-based analysis, and cultural analysis before CJTF-7 would gain much traction in understanding the true source and nature of the resistance in Iraq. The Shia. Divided We Stand. Page 179. Meanwhile, Iraq's Shia factions fought mostly among themselves in the summer of 2003, with some breaking off to attack the coalition military or to conduct reprisals against Iraq's Sunni population. Although most were happy to see the Ba'athist regime go, they did not agree with the United States and the coalition about the future of Iraq. They had long viewed the U.S. decision not to intervene in the 1991 uprisings as a betrayal of the Shia population, and despite some collaboration with the United States, many remained deeply suspicious of coalition motives for the invasion. Many Iraqi Shia leaders also had no intention of entrusting the security of their constituencies to the coalition military forces and saw regime collapse as an opportunity to exert Shia identity and majority control in Iraq. Efforts to achieve that objective led various Shia militias and armed groups to attack their Sunni competitors, coalition parties that obstructed those objectives, and each other. The Badr Corps remained the best organized of these armed groups, but Muqtada Sadr's Jaish al-Mahdi, or JAM, also known to Westerners as the Mahdi Army, quickly rose to prominence as the largest, if not the most proficient, of the Shia militias. Competition within Iraq's Shia community Saddam's fall from power created a political vacuum that at least four major forces within Iraq's majority Shia population vied to fill. The best organized of these forces was the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, 
led by Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim and his younger brother Abdul Aziz al-Hakim and its affiliated Badr Corps militia. Although SCIRI was well-organized and funded, many Iraqis distrusted the party because of its ties to Iran and its improving relations with the United States. The Shia religious community, or Hausa, in Najaf and Karbala, had far more influence on Iraq's Shia constituencies than any political party. However, led by the Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who tended to espouse the quietest tradition of Shia clerisy rather than an activist one, their reaction to the change of government in Iraq and the confusion that ensued was cautious and hesitant. The third force consisted of educated Iraqi Shia expatriates like Ahmad Chalabi and Ayad Alawi, who had led anti-Saddam opposition groups before the war. The fourth and final force was comprised of Shia religious families and leaders, Muqtada Sadr among them, who had remained in Iraq during the 1980s and 1990s when they were suppressed under Saddam's crackdown in southern Iraq. The murder of the young Ayatollah Abdul Majid al-Khoi by the Sadrists in Najaf in April 2003 and Mohammed Bakr al-Hakim's assassination by the Zarqawists in August exacerbated the divisions among the prominent Shia leaders of Iraq, especially between expatriates and those who had stayed behind and suffered under Saddam. These killings ended any hopes that the intra-Shia competition for power could be addressed purely through a political process and demonstrated that Shia leaders, too, could be targeted. SCIRI and the Sadrists began a low-level propaganda and arms race through their militias, while the Dawa party worked to gain ascendancy within the political process. The Shia religious community did little to defuse tensions among these groups until violence erupted. SCIRI and Dawa SCIRI was not the only major Shia Islamist political party to oppose Ba'ath party rule. The Islamic Call, or Dawa Party, was Iraq's oldest Shia Islamist party, forced outside Iraq by a Ba'athist crackdown in 1979. From the Dawa Party branch that fled to Iran, the Iranian regime had carved out a portion that became SCIRI in 1982 during the Iran-Iraq War. Iran supported both SCIRI and Dawa against Iraq and its Western allies during that war, and Dawa's most effective militant strike was the bombing of the American and French embassies in Kuwait in 1983. For two decades, Dawa remained suspicious of U.S. motivations and intentions and participated only reluctantly in discussions between the United States and Iraqi expatriate political parties in 2002 to 2003. Although the Iranian regime continued to provide some support to Dawa after the Iran-Iraq war ended, most Iranian aid went to the SCIRI-organized anti-Saddam militia force, the Badr Corps, an organization initially formed during the Iran-Iraq war by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, or IRGC, from Iraqi prisoners of war. By May 2003, CJTF-7 was tracking the Badr Corps presence in Iraq, but was largely unaware of Badr's systematic reprisal attacks against former Ba'athists, which included targeted assassinations of Iraqi Air Force pilots. Soldiers of Major General Raymond T. Odierno's 4th Infantry Division also monitored some of Badr's reprisals in Diyala and arrested militia members in a Badr headquarters in Bakaba. Odierno was confused and frustrated when orders came from CJTF-7 and the CPA to release members of the Badr Corps, not realizing that SCIRI leaders were already using their growing influence with the coalition to facilitate Badr activities. The Badr Corps had ample time to prepare for these attacks. 
Captured Iraqi and Iranian documents later revealed that the Badr Corps had four geographic commands or axes inside Iraq that dated to at least 1999, and each of these commands had experience conducting operations against the regime and the Saddam-sponsored Iranian opposition group Mujahideen-i-Khalq. Iraqi intelligence officials believed Badr Corps outposts were spread throughout Iraq in hospitals, businesses, and NGOs, including the Red Crescent. The Baghdad-based axis of the Badr Corps, one of the group's more powerful arms, was supervised from nearby Bakhtaran in Iran by Hamid Aatabi al-Shaibani, also known by the nom de guerre Abu Mustafa al-Shaibani. Shaibani's group developed extensive smuggling routes for moving weapons, relief supplies, men, money, and propaganda from Iran into Iraq to resource Badr activities in Baghdad, Diyala, and Wasit. It is likely that Shaibani's group was the arm of the Badr Corps with which Odierno's 4th Infantry Division had difficulties in the summer of 2003. These smuggling networks and Iran's involvement with Badr would later be instrumental in funneling lethal support such as explosively formed penetrators, or EFPs, into Iraq to be used against Iran's enemies and the coalition military. Despite being suspicious of U.S. intentions, SCIRI did not sanction attacks against coalition military targets in the summer of 2003, but was unable or unwilling to stop some portions of the Badr Corps from collaborating with Iran and attacking the coalition. One senior Badr commander, Jamal Jafar Muhammad Ali, who went by the nom de guerre Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, or The Engineer, had participated in the Dawa attacks on the U.S. and French embassies in 1983 along with Lebanese Hezbollah, and he had no love for the United States. Mohandas and some senior Dawa members were reportedly unhappy with SCIRI for participating in talks with the United States in 2002, and Mohandas allegedly resigned his leadership position in the Badr Corps, leaving the group under the control of Hadi al-Amiri. Mohandas would later be elected to the Iraqi parliament in 2005, before fleeing to Tehran once it was discovered that he was linked to attacks on the coalition. SCIRI was weakened politically when Zarqawi's operatives killed Mohammed Bakr al-Hakim in Najaf on August 29th, leaving the organization with his younger brother, Abdul Aziz al-Hakim, as its leader. The assassination of the elder Hakim brother left the Shia political sphere more open to competitors like Dawa, Chalabi's Iraqi National Congress, Alawi's Iraqi National Accord, and Muqtada Sadr. Competition particularly increased after Abdul Aziz al-Hakim alienated some of his would-be Iraqi constituency by declaring in August 2003 that Iraq should pay Iran $100 billion in reparations for the Iran-Iraq war, a hard pill for Iraqis to swallow, coming as it did from an Iranian-sponsored expatriate party. Muqtada Sadr and Jaysh al-Mahdi for a half-century before 2003, the Iraqi Shia religious community had been dominated by three great families, the Sadrs, the Hakims, and the Khoys. The rivalry among these families, each of whom enjoyed a large popular following, had occasionally spilled over into violence in the 1990s and would do so again after Saddam's fall. Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim was viewed in the 1990s as the main Shia religious rival to Muqtada Sadr's father, and this rivalry reignited as a violent struggle between SCIRI and Sadr in 2003. Competition and conflict between the Hakims and Sadrists intensified after Hakim's August 29th assassination. Shortly after the bombing that killed him, the Badr Corps sent black-clad militiamen ostensibly to guard the sacred Imam Ali shrine in Najaf, 
while the Najaf-based Hausa and local tribes hastily pieced together groups of fighters to prevent SCIRI from taking control of the city. In the meantime, Sadr increased the size of his Mahdi army militia and established a firm hold on Sadr city in Baghdad. He continued to build the Mahdi army and eventually pushed its overt presence into Najaf. In public, Sadr attempted to maintain distance from both Iran and the U.S.-led coalition to signal that he was unbound by foreign influence, a nationalist message that resonated with many Shia and compensated for the youthful Sadr's lack of religious credentials. Unlike his deceased grandfather, father, uncles, and brothers, Sadr was not a prominent religious scholar or ayatollah. While this lack of religious education affected his ability to influence and gain the support of the Hausa, it was not a problem for him in street-level politics. Privately, however, Sadr needed and eventually accepted support from the Iranian regime to achieve his political goals. Even though the main leaders of the Khoi and Hakim factions were removed from the equation, Sadr was far from politically dominant in Shia Iraq in August 2003 and had no specific strategy to gain power. However, he did receive support from some senior clerics associated with his family, such as Grand Ayatollah Qasim al-Hayri, an Iran-based Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps affiliate, who announced on April 7, 2003, that Sadr was his official representative in Iraq. In accordance with Hayri's instructions, Sadr ordered his Iraqi Shia followers to fill vacant administrative and governance posts in the south and in Sadr city. Like SCIRI, Sadr needed a powerful militia at his disposal to protect his constituency's interests. In April 2003, armed Sadr followers had provided security for the Arba'in pilgrimage and engineered the assassination of Sadr's political rival Ayatollah Abdul Majid al-Khoi. On July 18th, a few days after the CPA formed the Iraqi Governing Council, or IGC, Sadr gave a sermon in the Great Mosque in Kufa in which he branded the new Iraqi government non-believers and claimed he was setting up a religious army called the Mahdi Army. Now calling themselves Jaish al-Mahdi, members of this Sadr paramilitary club sought to enlarge the organization by incorporating members of the network established by Muhammad Sadiq Sadr in the 1990s. Jaish al-Mahdi also absorbed some of the Shia soldiers of the Fedayeen Saddam who lacked employment after CPA Order 2 dissolved the Iraqi security organizations. Most of Jaish al-Mahdi's members, however, were the uneducated Shia males whom the Ba'ath had repressed. Although they were eager to exact revenge on former Ba'athist supporters and to escape poverty and political disenfranchisement, the militia was an amateur organization with no formal hierarchy. It was, in the words of one of its former leaders, quote, just groups of armed men, end quote. Capable military leaders rapidly emerged from its ranks, however, and they began training companies and battalions in southern Iraq by the late summer of 2003. In the meantime, Sadr used his Friday sermons at the Great Mosque in Kufa, his chosen headquarters, to mobilize his supporters and the Mahdi army against the coalition presence using protests, propaganda, and other disruptive activities. The Kurds, Ambitious for Autonomy, page 183. Far to the north, the Kurds had enjoyed the advantages of secure autonomy under the protection of the northern no-fly zone before 2003. They were hardly eager to give up that autonomy after Saddam's fall. Kurdish leaders had ambitions to extend the geographic territory of their autonomous region to incorporate the population center of Mosul and, more importantly, the oil fields and financial independence possessing Kirkuk could afford them. 
Moreover, Kirkuk was intrinsically linked to Kurdish identity, and most Kurds could not envision a future Kurdistan that did not have Kirkuk as its capital. The Kurds already recognized that autonomy demanded patience and a strategy to avoid direct confrontation with their U.S. partners. Once the Peshmerga and the Kurdish intelligence organization, the Asayish, entered Mosul and Kirkuk with American soldiers in April 2003, they established offices under the auspices of the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or KDP, and Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK, respectively, and encouraged a gradual migration of Kurds to those population centers. In Kirkuk, Kurds moved into homes recently vacated by Sunni Arabs who had either left of their own accord or were intimidated by reprisal attacks the Peshmerga carried out against them. The Kurdish parties then wove themselves into the political and security apparatus of both cities, ensuring that Kurdish politicians held key government positions and that members of the Peshmerga and Asayish joined the new Iraqi army and police forces. At the national level, Masoud Barzani and Jalal Talabani used their positions within the Iraqi interim government and, eventually, Iraqi's elected government to press for Kurdish autonomy in northern Iraq. Like the Badr Corps, the Kurdish parties also carried out attacks against Iraq's former Sunni ruling class in the spring and summer of 2003, though the degree of the reprisals was not apparent to the coalition at first. Although Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force North, or CJSOTFN, personnel had observed Kurdish resettlement in Kirkuk, they were either unaware of or minimized Kurdish reprisals against the former Baathists who had not fled the city as part of forced relocations after Saddam Hussein's fall. The 101st Airborne Division, 173rd Airborne Brigade, and 4th Infantry Division troops who moved into Mosul and Kirkuk had seen the Kurds as partners because of the Kurdish role in the invasion. They, like the CJSOTFN soldiers, did not realize the extent or implications of the ongoing Kurdish reprisals. CJTF-7 senior intelligence officers observed signs that the KDP and PUK were, quote, doing assassinations all the way down to Baghdad, end quote, but they believed Sanchez considered Badr Corps and Kurdish reprisals to be matters that would sort themselves out. Many coalition commanders thought the same and, in any case, were uninterested in angering their Kurdish partners or creating more sources of conflict in an already troubled theater. For their part, the Kurds, in addition to serving their own self-interest, also believed they were assisting the coalition with countering the former Baathist resistance to the point of detaining and, in some cases, killing former Baathists and bringing them to coalition leaders to show their dedication to the cause. Thus, the true extent of Kurdish attacks and intimidation against Iraq's Sunni Arab population and the additional resentment it engendered remained largely invisible to CJTF-7. Interventions by Iraq's Neighbors Page 184 Turkey Turkey's strategic calculus in the wake of Saddam's fall was dominated by the prospect of Kurdish autonomy. As the coalition would soon discover, Turkey's most pressing concern was that the Iraqi Kurds might gain independence, which in turn might encourage separatism among the large population of Turkish Kurds residing in southeastern Anatolia. Turkey was also worried that a Kurdish state would permanently separate Turkey from the communities of ethnic Turkomans in northern Iraq, leaving them stranded in a new Kurdish-dominated northern Iraq. More importantly, the Turks feared that Kurdish autonomy would create an alliance between the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and the major Iraqi Kurdish parties, after which the KDP and the PUK might support renewed PKK attacks into Turkey. 
Therefore, CENTCOM believed that Turkey intended to mobilize opposition within Iraq to the Kurds' bid for autonomy or independence, especially to prevent the Kurds from controlling Kirkuk. This idea and Turkish intentions to maintain the integrity of Turkoman communities were evidenced by Turkey's support for Iraqi Turkoman groups that sought to carve out enclaves for themselves in Kirkuk and other areas where Turkomans were a significant population. In the summer of 2003, Turkey began hosting paramilitary training for Turkomans in northern Iraq, a development that alarmed the Kurds. For Turkish leaders, the Iraqi Turkomans served as a useful tool, allowing Ankara to insert itself into Iraqi politics in order to prevent the United States and the Iraqi factions from taking steps that might compromise Turkish interests. CENTCOM also determined that Turkey would not be reassured by the presence of its American North Atlantic Treaty Organization allies in northern Iraq. That presence instead, quote, made them nervous and suspicious that the United States intended to play the Kurdish card against Turkey to force Ankara to do what it wanted, end quote. Furthermore, the Turkish government and military had suspected since the 1990s that the United States had been planning to foster an independent Kurdish state, through which the United States could, quote, threaten Turkey and dominate the Middle East, end quote. Quote, when the Turks look at the U.S., one prominent American scholar advising CENTCOM on Turkish perspectives noted, they do not see an ally so much as the latest great power, and a great power, by its nature, seeks to increase its influence throughout a region and will do what it must, end quote. Abizade and his advisors judged that the Turkish government and military meant to increase pressure on their American counterparts to target the PKK in northern Iraq, both as a means of testing where U.S. loyalties lay and eliminating a longtime Kurdish rebel enemy. Turkey intensified its demands for the United States to attack the PKK, which had renamed itself the Kurdistan Freedom and Democracy Congress, or KADEK, after the July 4th incident involving American troops' detention of Turkish special forces. While U.S. officials agreed that the PKK could not be allowed to continue controlling segments of Iraq's northern border in the long term, CENTCOM, CJTF-7, and 101st Airborne Division Commander Major General David H. Petraeus were against taking military action against the PKK, given the scale of the other challenges the coalition faced in Iraq. Instead, CENTCOM offered to process PKK surrenders and facilitate as many voluntary returns as possible from the PKK-populated UN refugee camp in Mahmur in Nineveh province. This answer was hardly satisfactory for Turkish leaders, who would continue to pressure the United States on this issue for years to come. Syria The Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad responded to the invasion of Iraq in the context of a broader regional struggle that pitted Assad against the United States and its allies. Assad's posture during the Palestinian Intifada of 2000 made clear that he intended to continue his father's, Hafez al-Assad, policy of support to anti-Israeli militant groups. Although Syria denounced the September 11, 2001, or 9-11, attacks and assisted a Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, team in investigating al-Qaeda in 2002, Assad adopted a generally anti-Western stance. He was known to have a Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMD, program, and was in the process of developing closer ties with Axis of Evil states Iran and Iraq when Saddam's regime fell. 
In May 2002, U.S. Undersecretary of State John R. Bolton had labeled Syria one of the seven most worrisome state sponsors of terror, and American officials were unsurprised when Syria became one of the few Arab states in the region to oppose the invasion of Iraq openly and provided military assistance to the Iraqi regime during the invasion itself. Although the Assad regime continued to oppose the coalition military presence in Iraq, it had no desire in the summer of 2003 to provoke the United States openly. Privately, however, Assad sensed an opportunity to use the conflict in Iraq to undermine the United States and strengthen his regime's leverage in the region. As a result, the Assad regime secretly allowed armed insurgent and terrorist organizations to operate from Syria so long as none of their attacks occurred within Syria's borders, a strategy in keeping with that practiced by Hafez al-Assad. For most of the 1980s and 1990s, he hosted the armed opposition to each of his five neighboring governments. Even before the fall of the Saddam Hussein regime, Bashar al-Assad and his regime encouraged Arab Mujahideen to enter Iraq from Syrian territory in order to fight against coalition forces. One former Iraqi military official who was assigned to work with Arab foreign fighters ahead of the 2003 invasion recalled that the fighters often brought with them personnel files compiled by Syrian regime officials. Similarly, the former Syrian governor of Deir ez-Zur province, Nawaf Faris, revealed in 2012 that after the 2003 invasion, quote, the regime in Syria began to feel danger and began planning to disrupt the U.S. forces inside Iraq, so it formed an alliance with al-Qaeda. All Arabs and other foreigners were encouraged to go to Iraq via Syria, and the Syrian government facilitated their movements. As governor at the time, I was given verbal commandments that any civil servant that wanted to go would have his trip facilitated and that his absence would not be noted. Al-Qaeda would not carry out activities without knowledge of the regime. The Syrian government would like to use Al-Qaeda as a bargaining chip with the West, to say, it is either them or us. End quote. In addition to the relationships he maintained with Iraqi resistance leaders like Izzat Ibrahim al-Duri and Mohammed Yunus al-Ahmad, Bashar al-Assad also allowed many former Iraqi regime leaders, military commanders, and intelligence service members to reside inside Syria. As the summer of 2003 waned, the United States became increasingly frustrated with Syria's refusal to turn over senior-ranking Ba'athists residing in Syria and Assad's seeming ambivalence about putting more security forces on his borders to stem the flow of foreign fighters into Iraq. Assad also had more personal motives for sponsoring former Ba'ath party members on Syrian soil. He wished to resolve the long-standing dispute over regional leadership of the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party that had raged between the Syrian and Iraqi Ba'ath Party branches since the late 1960s. Beginning in the 1970s, Syrian leader Hafez al-Assad and Saddam had both claimed that their regimes were the true leaders of the regional Ba'ath Party, and each had hosted a wing of the Ba'ath Party comprised of each other's expatriate oppositionists. When Izzat Ibrahim al-Duri arrived on Bashar al-Assad's doorstep in summer 2003 asking for Assad's assistance in building an armed Iraqi Ba'ath organization in exile, Assad seized on the opportunity to assert authority over the Iraqi Ba'ath party once and for all. A former advisor to Assad also intimated that Muhammad Yunus al-Ahmad's rise to prominence might have originated as a Syrian initiative in the interest of dividing and controlling the Iraqi Ba'ath party. Assad reportedly sponsored Ahmad and approximately 100 of his followers as an artificial competitor wing to Duri's much larger following, with Ahmad's branch sustained by Syrian regime money. 
In any case, Assad allowed both organizations to gain substantial footholds inside Syria and created an easy path for men, money, and materials from a host of insurgent and terrorist organizations to transit between Syria and Iraq with comparative ease. The Iranian Regime Iran had a greater stake in the future of Iraq than any of Iraq's other neighbors, and Iranian regime leaders had long considered the survival of their Islamic Republic to be intertwined with Iraq's future. Although Iranian leaders were pleased with the disappearance of their number one enemy, Saddam, and his Sunni-dominated Ba'athist regime, it was unlikely that the United States would establish a new Iraqi government friendly to Iran. While Iranian leaders hoped to see a Shia-majority rule in Iraq, a Shia-led democratic government in Iraq might threaten the legitimacy of Iran's clerical regime. Iranian leaders also had to consider that, absent Ba'athist repression, the Shia religious centers in Najaf and Karbala could become competitors to Iranian primacy in Shia Islam, as pilgrims and clerics moved far more freely to the Iraqi holy cities than they had been able to do under Saddam. Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei's religious credentials were meager, and since he ruled via the principle of velayat e the belief that an Islamic government should be ruled by its supreme clerical judge, the proximity of a non-authoritarian Islamic democracy supported by better-credentialed Iraq-based religious leaders such as Grand Ayatollah Ali Husseini Sistani might show the Iranian people an alternative to the supreme leader's Iranian government. Iranian leaders were also likely concerned about the proximity of the American military, now present on Iran's western and eastern borders. To Iranian eyes, if the United States retained a close relationship with a democratic Iraq, the new Iraq might become an American platform for targeting the Iranian regime. To prevent the new Iraqi state from becoming too close to the United States, the Iranian regime embarked on a multifaceted strategy to bind a new, more federated Iraq closer to Iran while simultaneously forcing the United States to withdraw from the region. This strategy involved creating instability inside Iraq, placing the responsibility for the chaos on the United States and its Iraqi partners, and ensuring pro-Iranian politicians dominated the new Iraqi government. Once pro-Iranian Iraqi leaders were in place, Iran could then reduce the violence and their Iraqi proxies could claim to be strong leaders who had brought peace and order. To that end, the Iranian regime would support multiple Shia political parties and Shia militias. The regime, through its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, already had close relationships with Dawa and SCIRI and would support members of these parties in leading positions in Iraq's transitional government. Iranian leaders also aimed to broaden their popular influence in Iraq, and with this in mind, they reached out to the Sadrists through Grand Ayatollah Hari in the spring of 2003, eventually arranging Sadr's visit to Tehran later in the summer. Iran's IRGC was well-equipped to develop the emerging Iraqi Shia militias. Through its pre-existing relationships with the Badr Corps and Lebanese Hezbollah, the IRGC had created extensive support networks in Iraq and Lebanon and hoped to develop new networks elsewhere. The IRGC's Quds, Jerusalem force, also had experience supporting militias in the Balkans, and its leader, Brigadier General Qasem Soleimani, had expanded the organization's capabilities to include paramilitary, diplomatic, and intelligence activities. The Ramazan Corps of the Quds Force was assigned to Iraq in the 1990s to work with resistance organizations against the Ba'athist regime and the Mujahideen-e-Khalq. 
The Quds force used members of Lebanese Hezbollah, the Badr Corps, and later Jaysh al-Mahdi to establish Iranian surrogate military cells throughout Iraq that could increase or reduce violent attacks against the coalition on order. The Iranian regime was careful not to implicate itself in these attacks, however, because, like the Assad regime, it had little desire to engage the United States in open warfare. Tribal disenfranchisement, Sunnis' gradual return to their Islamic roots, and Syrian support for former Ba'ath Party leaders and terrorist organizations fueled Iraq's Sunni insurgency, while terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda and Ansar al-Islam maneuvered their way into the same networks in Iraq's Sunni heartland, a territory covered with only a thin coalition presence. CENTCOM and CJTF-7 understood that the bulk of the violence directed against them arose from a Sunni insurgency, but were constrained from labeling the activity as such, and in CJTF-7's case, lacked the tools and intelligence experience to analyze and comprehend fully this environment. They also overlooked some other important contributors to Iraq's increasingly unstable security situation. Because most of the attacks against CJTF-7 appeared to emanate from Sunni resistance and terrorist groups, and because both CJTF-7 and CPA believed that the bulk of Iraq's Shia remained sympathetic to and supportive of their coalition liberators, coalition leaders took the comparatively calm security situation in the majority Shia provinces for granted. Additionally, the deteriorating security situation in Baghdad and northern Iraq made the coalition reluctant to open a second front by attempting to rein in Kurdish or Shia militias and armed groups. By the time CJTF-7 realized this mistake, the Badr Corps and Muqtada Sadr's Jam militia had spent months extending their grasp on territory and stockpiling equipment and ammunition in preparation for war. More generally, the power vacuum created by the collapse of the Iraqi state had sent a bewildering array of factions rushing to fill the void. The coalition recognized the danger posed by the Sunni insurgency, and leaders like Abizaid began to analyze its implications, but coalition leaders were little aware of the strategic dangers posed by other factions. An impending Shia power struggle, the Arab-Kurd struggle in northern Iraq, and the destabilizing intent of each of Iraq's interventionist neighbors were dynamics the coalition did not fully recognize in the first half-year after the invasion. As the months passed, these dangerous factors would combine to create a violent political conflict that the coalition was hard-pressed to contain. End of Chapter 7 Mukawama wa Intikam Resistance and Reprisals, May to August 2003 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021